we are uh, po more powerful than than we can imagine. And that's something that's totally pulled from Marianne Williamson's poem, Our Deepest Fears, um, which was referenced by Nelson Mandela in his 1994 uh, inaugural speech, saying that our deepest fear is not that we are an ina inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's mm -hmm. our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. And that's been my mantra since... Uh, working at Spirit in the Pines, uh, you know, Bible camp up in Hackensack, Minnesota. Welcome back to Alter Guild. I'm Matthew Ian Fleming, and this season we are talking about who we are at our core, the experiences and identities that drive us. I'm so excited to share with all of you a conversation I had with Brian J. Evans, I got to know Brian when he was creative arts minister at our church. Brian is a dancer, a multimedia artist, a communicator, a storyteller, and an amazing human being. In his own words, he's a citizen artist. My name is Brian J. Evans, um, and I would describe myself as a citizen artist, which is a newer term that I've come across. Um, a lot of the work that I do um, it's community-based, um, it's always social justice focused. It always tries to get at the means of what it, what does it mean to be who we are, um, how those parts of us get validated, what parts of us are uh, sort of taken issue with by society or told that we, we shouldn't express those parts of us because um, it's less valuable or um, it's not worthy of our attention or somehow uh, a part of us uh, should be full of shame and guilt and, and that should be sort of sequestered away and we only show the good part. We see it in perfectly shot Instagram feeds with perfect families and perfect people. But we have a tendency to curate our lives, both digitally and in person, to present only the best parts of ourselves. Of course, we miss enormous parts of each of us in these presented identities. Here's Brian. It's the sort of idea of curating our existence. And when you do that long enough, you start to think that those parts of us are exactly what society would uh, lead you to believe. Um, it becomes part of your story and it becomes something that um, you try to hide. And, and if it does come out, it's the worst thing ever. And um, and I feel like the, the more we can have practice uh, validating uh, both uh, the good and the bad to the point where there is no good, there is no bad, it's just us, it's experience, it's, it's life and all of its uh, complexities and uh, the mysteries of, that, uh, of what makes us who we are and the unknown being something that is terrifying but also where change and vulnerability lie. I think that's uh, what I try to do with my art. Brian's art goes beyond the curated self and gives audiences practice affirming the imperfect, flawed, broken parts of each of us. There's something really cool in humans called mirror neurons where like if you're seeing or witnessing an experience, um, seeing someone go through that, we're automatically sort of hardwired to experience that. That's a lot of where our empathy comes from. We see something and we are uh, compelled 
to experience that in our own way. And that's how we can sort of like take on other people's stories. That's why art, in my estimation, works. It's like you watch a play and you see what's happening. And like, like when someone gets punched in the stomach, you have that visceral response. When you see two people falling in love, those same sort of synapses are firing in order for you to understand what you're seeing. Um, and that's just a really cool concept. So just knowing that from the biological, psychological standpoint, it's like when I'm presenting something on stage, I already know that there's a fundamental uh, threshold of experience happening. And it's, it's sort of knowing that and sort of capitalizing on the fact that if I, if I can allow myself to go through something, the hope is energetically uh, that the audience will go through something too. And, and really, it's just like getting practice. It's in a society where we're, we're sort of like, we have to be fine and good most of the time. You know, it's like, how you doing? I'm good. How you doing? I'm, I'm pretty fine. You know, it's like, even though we might be dealing with like immense joy or supreme depression, uh, it's hard for us to just, because, you know, the expectation is that everyone's good, everyone's calm, and we live in a very sort of limited, uh, limited bandwidth of emotional dexterity, um, knowing that we can go to the limits, but we, we, we don't. And so I, I feel like if I can be a bit messy, uh, a bit unfinished, a bit raw on stage, or be as exposed or vulnerable, that hopefully the audience can, again, have practice experiencing what that's like for them and then privately or within, you know, community sort of talk about that and, and unpack that and, and again, just have, have practice uh, going through something so that if something does come up or has come up, that they have tools to not be frozen in the moment, to not panic, to not freak out, but embrace the fact that something is going to happen and you don't know what, um, but it's probably going to be um, something that you can grow from. Have you ever seen a piece of art that revealed something about yourself that you didn't know existed? Have you ever been so moved by a piece of music or dance or film or sculpture that you were moved or to sobbing tears or heaving laughter? If you haven't, you need to get out a bit more. Brian recognizes that there are limited avenues for real connection with people who are different, but art is a way that connects each of us. I used to think that art and education uh, built bridges um, and building things is really hard. It takes a lot of planning and forethought. Um, and, and strategy and buy-in from a lot of different groups. You know, if you're building a bridge from one side to the other side, where does it land? Where is it supposed to sit? H how do you do that? Do you have permission? Do you got permits? All these things. Um, and I, what I've come to believe and understand is that the bridges are already there. They exist. And our, even our own way of looking at the world, we are very good at putting things on that bridge to say that we can't cross them. We are very good at uh, constructing barriers and building walls to make sure that uh, ultimately your story isn't my story. Ultimately, your feelings of otherness aren't my feelings of otherness because we're all individual and we're super unique. And so I can't feel what it 
means to be a white person. I can't feel what it means to be black. I can't feel what it means to be a woman or gay or a Muslim or um, I can't feel anything other than just myself. And I feel like art has the capability to to blow those things up, to deconstruct those barriers, mm-hmm. to uh, brush them aside, to make them transparent, um, to suspend reality. I mean, our, our imaginations are endless. And so if the bridges are already there, it's much easier to like knock stuff off and, and uh, bust through things, um, knowing that the foundation is already laid out for us. I think that's why art works. Um, and if I had to individually build bridges to everyone in the audience, I think that would be exhausting. But for me, I think I'm just sort of like reminding people of a lot of the stuff that they already know. In order to walk these bridges between people and remove the boundaries that we project, Brian has created space for his own story to interact with others. So I'm a... Uh, I'm what's called a a racially mixed perceived black man and I grew up in a small town in Minnesota, um, Gaylord, Minnesota, a town of 2200 people and I was one of six black people in the town at the time. And fortunately for me, my grandfather, John Seward, was the postmaster of the town so I wasn't just one um, random person of color in that small town. I was John's grandson. Um, and he's the kind of guy that like got write in votes for mayor. So, um, I, and in a small community to its credit, you know, we take care of our own. And so once I was part of that community, um, everyone looked out for me. And so I, uh, for better or for worse was assimilated into that culture, you know, white culture. And I, uh, believed in myself because part of uh, the privilege of white culture is that there's uh, an innate uh, value that comes along with with hearing things like um, if you work hard you, you'll, you'll get ahead uh, if you put your mind to it you know anything is possible um, we even had t-shirts um, in our school uh, that had emboldened expect respect and you know, imagining, you know, the power of that, you know, as because I didn't see myself as a perceived uh, black person. I just, I was Brian. And so to have a shirt that said expect respect and grow up in that idea of like, um, I deserve respect, you know, I should expect that from people. Um, that is a vastly different outlook for other folk, for other people in different situations. And I came to realize that in college. Um, so, you know, leaving my small town and, and going to a slightly bigger town, but still pretty small, St. Peter, Minnesota, Gus Davis Adolphus, like the, the, the population of that um, was also not as, as diverse, but there were international students. And the first time I ever met someone that was gay, um, were coming from a culture where everything that was different was gay. Um, you know, gay this and gay that. Um, and so I had to reconcile pretty quickly that I wasn't white um, and I was mixed. And what did that mean? And um, the first time I was in my social justice theater troupe that uh, was tasked with creating a show called E Pluribus Gus Davis. And every first year that would come to campus would be exposed to what uh, I and we are would bring up, which is essentially 
almost every uh, otherness possible, you know, any ism that you can think of on the good side and the bad side um, to expose, you know, a lot of these students who came from places like uh, I did where I hadn't met anyone that was uh, Muslim. I hadn't met anyone that was, you know, literally from Asia, you know, like that, that just wasn't in the cards because it was a small community. And so when we had to write the skits and again it's not that diverse so when the black skit came up and everyone's looking at me and i'm like i don't know what it means to be black uh even though that's exactly what everyone would assume um so that was the first time that i had to come up against this idea that uh, my perception of myself is not what people see Fortunately for me, um, my, my upbringing allows me to take on racism from a very different point of view, which is not that it is inherently true. Like when I hear something that's racist or I experience something, um, I don't, it doesn't hit my heart or my nervous system. Um, I'm able to catch it intellectually and it's like, oh, it's a cute little problem because um, because I have the foundation of knowing that I should expect respect when I get disrespected, I, I know that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with what you think of me. And that is a ripe opportunity for me to give you another story, to give you a different perspective, to change your idea of what it means to, to, to relate to someone like me. And it's not to negate the... The history, um, because tokenism and colorblindness are real things that that are not um, uh, that also have a lot of power and it, and it undercuts the experience of a lot of people of color um, and people of color in its own right. You know, as an umbrella term, is the, is the same kind of undervaluing um, without power as whiteness is with power. Whiteness strips away a lot of humanity because. We all have different heritages, you know, whether it's German, Sweden, whatever, but whiteness as the dominant force um, doesn't allow white people to engage in racial conversations because they feel like they're, they don't have race, right? There's nothing for me to talk about because one, I don't have that experience and, and those who know that they have privilege surrounding that um, and privilege just in the sense of like, I don't think about it, you know? When Brian and I met to record this conversation, we met at a church that I know well. But it wasn't a church that he was familiar with. The door was locked as he walked up, and I wasn't there to greet him. What seemed like nothing to me was absolutely something to Brian. Yet in the moment, he created space to have honest conversation about the identities and threats that others assume for him. Even today, when I, <laughs> so I'm coming in here and you know, I'm thinking, okay, I am a perceived black man. And walking up to a church door, you know, and in Minnesota uh, is, is an interesting conundrum because especially in a city, where people of color walk up to doors, it can be a very 
a tricky situation, especially. So I like already had in my script of like who I'm going to reference. I'm going to say that I know Pastor Matthew. I'm going to say that I'm here for a reason. Um, the door being locked, you know, and there's no malice in uh, the woman that was in the office. But the first thing that she said was security reasons in my head, you know, like, am I a security threat? I, you know, being black in a city, walking up to a door is a security threat for a lot of people. And that's unfortunate because because of the actuality of me, like I'm coming here for a reason. You know, it's been sanctioned. I'm safe, you know. And then, so that's the kind of work that I take on as something that's an opportunity as opposed to uh, it being a really exhausting, emotionally draining experience. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, it's a small thing and it doesn't mean anyone is bad or, uh, you know, doesn't consider these things or or if I were to bring it up that they wouldn't you know have the face on you have right now which is like what am I supposed to do with it you know um and that's you know that's part of the conversation it's like not having practice because I don't want anyone to feel bad but the reality of what happens for someone that looks like me on a day-to-day basis is 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 part of um, the conversation that because it's, you know, microaggressions or not even aggressions, it's just micro moments that happen every single day. And because they're not a big deal, why, like, why would I bring that up? Why would I even have the opportunity to talk about it? Um, which is why I even, you know, I don't, had no idea what we were going to talk about, yeah. but, but, but talking um, and getting more stories out, uh, even the ones that are awful or not so comfortable will definitely, in my estimation, help us when there are awful things. Because no one called me the N-word. No one's, you know, mm-hmm. t- you know, the Mark ran around and like, hey, you know, engage in that, that conversation. Um, and that was great. So that like there are moments and pockets of all of that happening. Um, but I think when it's not at the forefront for some people, that's where they go to right away. Like, I'm less than, it's uh, same old stuff every single day. I have to get through the next day. And for others, it's not even a thing. You know, it's just like, yep, security reasons. And, I, you know, yeah. and so it, it's part It's part of, uh, it's, a, it's an example of going back to your first question of like, is there a moment? And I think the transition from coming from Gaylord to going to Gus Davis and then having a life that is is always cognitive dissonance. Like I I have a version of myself, <clears throat> but the version of myself uh, only goes so far as me uh, trying to come to terms with the fact that the version of myself is never what anyone expects. Um, and when I have the opportunity, it's great because yeah. I can really change minds. Uh, but for the most part, I don't have that opportunity. I'm just walking down the street and someone sees me and has their thoughts. Um, so I feel the most comfortable when I'm on a stage or I feel the most comfortable when I have an opportunity to, to speak uh, to this because uh, I don't usually get those opportunities.
bridges are already there. Bridges to communicate one human being to another. But we clutter them with small talk. We blockade them with assumptions. Or we just walk right by them in ignorance. And yet in his moment of vulnerability, Brian showed the grace of a dancer and the wisdom of a poet. I've seen it happen time and again in Brian's work within our church community. Brian dances across those bridges with vulnerability, grace, and honesty, inviting each of us to encounter another's story and to challenge our own assumptions. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna do this life thing, uh, I'd love to pour my energy into something that uh, is transformative and um, opens up doors and perspectives for people that wouldn't wouldn't and art has put me into places where statistically I don't even exist I shouldn't be there and and that's amazing to me you know like art has taken me back into greater Minnesota and, and put me in front of you know people that uh, would never see someone like me and and never see someone like me and then get my story you know that's I think part of it because you can see people like me all the time, and that's the whole point. You see the people, and you think what you think, but almost always, it is never going to be what you imagined. Brian finds affinity with Jesus as an example of one who was killed for his otherness, and because he rearranged and deconstructed those barriers. And, and when I think about it in, in sort of a Christian context, I mean... <laughs> In terms of otherness, you know, Christ was an other, he was a weird dude compared to everyone else at the time, and his expectations about how to treat people were not normal, um, which is why he was persecuted and killed, you know, as an example. And I think that's happening all the time. And symbolically, you know, the, the otherness in ourselves, um, whatever we think that is, we are trained to sort of systematically destroy it, quiet it, suppress it, put it off to the side to, again, curate our best selves. And unfortunately, in this society, our best selves is typically a white male with money um, and success and lots of friends and high exposure and fully able-bodied and, and straight. And, you know, it's like all of these things that we have placed at the top of the value structure um, which is, again, not to say that, you know, if you tick all those boxes of, of having amazing privilege, it's not doesn't mean that you're going to be happy. And I think that's also part of the issue is that we realize that once we get to the top of the pyramid, the view isn't all that great. And yet Brian is deeply skeptical about the power of single-storied organized religion. I'm probably going to uh, say her name wrong, but uh, there's a TED Talk out there um, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and she talks about the single story and how when there is a single story that holds so much power, uh, again, it sort of doesn't allow for all of these other stories that are valid and are true. Um, and the single story you know, in terms of like a stereotype, you know, she says like the, the problem of stereotypes is not that they're untrue, it's that they're incomplete. And having one story. So w when I took this Bible class and I took anthropology of religion and 
at the same time I'm learning who wrote the Bible, why, what was the context of the history of that choosing what's in the Bible, you know, Constantine and all that. Uh, it was fascinating. And then I took this anthropology religion course of like how religions are constructed, how a lot of them, uh, like some, something crazy, like 2000 religions are made a year and just as many die, you know, it's like within the same cycle and you start learning about Mormonism, you start learning about, uh, you know, Islam and like the prophet Muhammad and Jesus Christ sort of like being around at the same time or, um, you know, and then, uh, so to simplify it, and this is something, this is kind of crazy because I, I heard this story at a, at a Bible camp that I went to when I was like in fifth grade or something like that. But I, I heard this story where like God's walking through town and he's wearing this beautiful hat. Uh, and I, even then he's wearing this beautiful, God's walking through town. So like trying to not nod gender is like God's walking through town and God is wearing this hat and it's awesome. It's beautiful, um, it's beautifully colored, it's different, you know, multicolors all, all over the all over and there's a town meeting that happens afterward talk about oh my gosh god walked through town and the people on the west side saw this beautiful blue shimmery material and the people on the east side saw this red you know and so then they start talking about god walked through town he was wearing a blue hat no 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 he was wearing a red hat and, and then the people in the north are like i don't like it was yellow it was coming it was beautiful you know it's like and so this idea that you know and they completely lose the fact that god walked through town it's all about the hat for me the it's it's all human semantics we don't know Nobody knows. It's like this idea that that human imagination created religion as a way to cope with the unknown and using arguably really amazing people, you know, who were uh, in history, like uh, t to finally understand that like Jesus Christ was an actual person, arguably one of the most rebellious, you know, people in in this sort of history timeline. And there were other people doing the same thing in different capacities. You know, the Prophet Muhammad very, being very uh, sort of prolific of like what that teaching was and how that at the time was crazy. Like, what are you talking about? There's even, you know, like, uh, like your knowledge of like the Christmas story, how there are multiple versions of the Christmas story. And because we focused on the one, yeah. it becomes the story as opposed to there are multiple iterations. And for me, the the idea that I can do both, like I have the power to, to in the, the capacity to do both, to not align myself with organized religion, but also believe in the teachings of Christ, I feel that's exactly what I should be doing. If you'd like to learn more about Brian Evans' work, you can visit his website at brianjevans.org. Brian, this has been 
Awesome. Thanks for taking the time out of your New Year's and Christmas break uh, from a busy um, uh, schedule artistically. And uh, as you're studying for your MFA, I'm really grateful for the time um, that you've shared. So thanks for being with us, Brian. Absolutely. Thanks for asking the questions. As Brian stretches his capacity for wonder and curiosity, skepticism and doubt in the same breath, he stretches each of us to seek stories that challenge us, that uproot our assumptions and push us to see that our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, but we are powerful beyond measure. May each of us practice dancing the bridges that connect us through art and conversation so that we might see the multiple stories that bind us together. Alter Guild is hosted by Meta Herrick Carlson, Matthew Ian Fleming, Miriam Samuelson-Roberts, and Derek Tronsgaard, with edits by Matt and Derek. You can find us on our website at alterguild.org, that's A-L-T-E-R, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. We're so excited about the growing guild of podcasts that are curious and wonderful. You can find more about that on our website or at our sister podcast, Cafeteria Christian, at cafeteriachristian.club. And stay tuned as we explore new and exciting podcasts that will be launched in the coming months. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, go in peace, listen, love, serve, and alter. Alter.